Women have played a significant role in our society and culture through time. So let's take a look at the history from the women's side. I'm your host, Brittany, and welcome to Her Story Sessions. So last time, I talked about superwomen and a few things that were introduced during World War II era. But women in real life were doing super things then, too. During World War II, the men all left to fight, and the women stepped up to fill those roles they left behind. I have great respect for the men fighting, but I also think the women from this time deserve recognition for how they contributed to the war effort, and we wouldn't have won without the roles they played. In the words of great General Eisenhower, the contribution of the women of America, whether on the farm or in the factory or in uniform, to D-Day was sine qua of the invasion effort. So what did the women do exactly? Well, lots of things, actually. Time for a Her Story session. World War II had already been going on for a few years before the U.S. entered it, joining only after the attack on Pearl Harbor in Hawaii. That day is still remembered as a historically significant and somber event. Women there were not exempt from the horrors. There were 82 women from the Army Nurse Corps stationed at Pearl Harbor at the time. They, along with volunteer civilian nurses, worked day and night, hardly sleeping, trying to help the sudden flowing in of hundreds of wounded men. Lieutenant Annie Fox was the head nurse at the station hospital. She administered anesthesia to patients during the heaviest parts of bombardments, helped with the dressing of the wounded, and taught the civilians how to make dressings and work constantly and efficiently while maintaining a cool head the entire time. Because of this, she became the first woman in the Army to earn a Purple Heart, although it was later changed to a Bronze Star because of the requirement changes in 1944. When she was first awarded, a Purple Heart did not have the injury requirement. Another woman that witnessed the attack was a reporter named Elizabeth Betty McIntosh. A week later, she wrote a report on what she saw and to warn women of what was ahead, but the article was deemed too graphic by the editor and was rejected. It wasn't printed until 71 years later when the Washington Post published it. Here's an extract of it. For seven ghastly, confused days, we have been at war. To the women of Hawaii, it has meant a total disruption of home life, a sudden acclimation to blackout nights, terrifying rumors, fear of the unknown as planes drone overhead and lorries shriek through the streets. The seven days may stretch to seven years, and the women of Hawaii will have to accept a new routine of living. It is time, now after the initial confusion and terror have subsided, to sum up the events of the past week to make a plan for the future. Another quote from it states, It was then that I realized how important women can be in a war-torn world. She didn't realize how much she herself would become important to the war effort. In 1943, she was working in Washington, D.C. when her supervisors wanted her to cover Atherton Richards, who had been the head of a firm in Honolulu, working on the mechanizations of sugarcane harvesting. He also so happened to be a top official under General J. Wild Bill Donovan, the then chief of the Office of Strategic Services, or OSS for short. In an interview, she later explained to CIA historians, He was a friend of my father's. It was very difficult to get in to see him, but I finally managed to. After our interview, he said, Wouldn't you like to get into something interesting like... You know, he didn't say spying, but he just said, More interesting than maybe the work you're doing. 
Laura was covering Eleanor Roosevelt at the White House, and it wasn't too bad. I said I would be interested if it meant going overseas. He said, I can promise you that. So that's how I joined the OSS. So in 1943, Betty McIntosh joined the nation's first intelligence agency, one of the few women under the Morales Operation Branch. Fluent in Japanese, she was assigned to the Far East Division. Their job was to create and distribute so-called black propaganda. Rumors that foreign enemies would believe designed to bring down their morale. This propaganda was spread by false radio messages and news reports, among other things. In the summer of 1943, the Japanese troops were already somewhat demoralized after the defeat by the Allies at Infall Plain and were retreating. The Japanese soldiers were famously known to continue fighting rather than surrender, thanks to Japanese government threatening to strip their birth rates if they did, and this cost more lives on each side. Betty's first job was undermining the notion that surrender was unacceptable and taking advantage of leadership changes in the Japanese government and the uncertainties associated with it, they forged orders that surrender was acceptable under certain conditions. Because of this, more fighting and many lives were spared thanks to Betty and her team. On another assignment, she went behind enemy lines to China, where they funneled misinformation to a fortune teller with a popular radio show who was popular with the Chinese. On his radio show, he announced that, quote, something terrible is going to happen to Japan. We have checked the stars and there is something we can't even mention because it is so dreadful and it is going to eradicate one whole area of Japan. Unknown to Betty's team, the U.S. dropped the first atom bomb on Hiroshima that same day. After the war, OSS disbanded and Betty did several other jobs before going to join the CIA and then finally retiring in 1973. She lived to be 100 years old, passing away in 2015. Before the U.S. entered the war, women were not allowed to enter any of the armed forces. But after Pearl Harbor and with Eleanor Roosevelt advocating for women's involvement, this was changed. Throughout World War II, over 350,000 women served in the military. They were part of the newly formed Women's Army Auxiliary Corps, WAACs, later renamed the Women's Army Corps, WACs, the National Women's Reserves, WAVES, the Marine Corps Women's Reserve, the Coast Guard's Women's Reserve, SPARS, the Women's Air Force Service Pilots, WASPs, the Army Nurse Corps, and the Navy Nurse Corps. While women were not allowed to take part in combat training, they served in many roles. Some worked in the office or clerical jobs for the military, but many others were working as lab technicians, serving as radio operators, driving trucks, rigging parachutes, analyzing photographs, repairing airplanes, test flying the repaired planes, and even training anti-aircraft artillery gunners by acting as flying targets. Some of the women serving in the Army Nurse Corps served near the front lines and 16 were killed by enemy fire. More than 1,600 nurses were decorated for bravery under fire and meritorious service, and 565 of the Women's Army Corps in the Pacific Theater won combat decorations. Of course, women not directly involved in the military played a large role, too. In the 30s, there was a steady rise of women in the workforce due to the Great Depression, but they were limited to so-called women's work, things such as housekeeping, nursing, and teaching. But after the war started and the men were all being drafted to serve, a large gap opened up in the workforce, both in everyday jobs and in the factories now producing needed war materials such as munitions and planes. To fill this gap, the Rosie the Riveter campaign started to convince both employers to hire women for the traditional male jobs and for the middle class women to help with their war effort by going to work. 
From 1940 to 1945, the percentage of women in the workforce jumped from 27% to 37%. Rosie the Riveter is fictional, but she's based on real factory workers. Rosie the Riveter was originally a song written by Red Evans and John Jacob Leob, written about 19-year-old Rosalind Walter, who worked as a riveter on Corsair fighter planes at the Vought Aircraft Company in Stratford, Connecticut. Some of the lyrics include... All the day long, whether rain or shine, she's part of the assembly line. She's making history, working for victory, Rosie the Riveter. Keep a sharp lookout for sabotage sitting up there on the fuselage. That little girl will do more than a male will do. Then Norman Rockwell did a painting of a muscular woman in blue overalls against a flag backdrop with a riveting gun across her lap. A copy of Mein Kampf under her boot and on her lunchbox the name Rosie is written. On May 29, 1943, this was published on the front of the Saturday Evening Post. With an estimated over 4 million copies printed, this image became the well-known Rosie image of the war, not the woman with a polka dot banana on her hair, flexing her arm saying, we can do it. That image was originally created in 1942 for Westinghouse Electric Corporation by J. Howard Miller and was most likely only posted within their factory for employees to see and had nothing to do with Rosie. That one only became popular in the 80s, and that is most attributed to a 1982 Washington Post magazine article, Poster Art for Patriotism's Sake, about the poster collections in the National Archives. Even though women were supposed to get the same pay as men, the real-life Rosies only earned about half of the men's workers, but they took great pride in their work. In some places, they even outperformed them. They tended to pay more attention to detail, for example. The foreman of a California consolidated aircraft once told the Saturday Evening Post, nothing gets by them unless it's right. Here are several more examples from the 1942 U.S. Department of Labor report for the Women's Bureau, Equal Pay for Women in War Industries. In packing and inspecting link belts used for feeding ammunition into machine guns, women's output in a government arsenal was reported to be 40% greater than of men's. Women learned faster and did more careful work than men in inspection operations in the manufacture of cutters for gear shapers. A woman operating a sensitive drill in an aircraft plant had maintained a record of double the output of a man formerly on the job. In aircraft manufacture, a drill operation required that a very small hole be drilled into small metal pieces. A man on the job drilled 650 holes a day. When a girl was put on, she kept up a record of 1,000 holes a day. And they did all of this while still raising their children, many as single parents while their husbands were away, and continuing to take care of the household chores, shopping, and errands they were doing before the war started. This was no easy task. Women still faced criticisms for not staying home with their children, even though their contributions to the workforce was much needed, and in some cases the mothers, with their husbands gone, needed the income to survive. Older children would sometimes be left in charge of the younger ones. Some of the young mothers pooled their resources and would triple up in apartments to split the cost of rent, food, and sharing household and child care responsibilities. Women in the defense industry received some assistance from the 1940 Lanham Act, which provided grants to child care facilities, but these were mostly in areas where there was a high production of war materials. Some 600,000 children went to federal child care services during the war years, but even at their height, they only helped about 13% of the children that needed them. But the West Coast had a few exceptions to the overall inadequate child care across the country. 
The Kaiser Shipbuilding Company provided female employees in Washington, Oregon, and California with well-staffed centers for their children and the Richmond shipyards in the San Francisco Bay Area oversaw about 1,400 children a day. Eleanor Roosevelt was a champion of the working women, advocated for more federally-backed childcare even after the war, and urged reforms like staggering work hours at factories so women could do things like grocery shopping, which might otherwise be closed at the time their shifts ended. She also advocated for women's rights, housing reform, and an end to segregation, among many other things. The day after Pearl Harbor, FDR gave his Day of Infamy speech, but Eleanor also gave a radio address to talk about the need for Americans to focus on the war effort and to try to calm the fear people had about the future and to call upon the young women and young people to support their leaders in the coming days. Beginning in 1939, she had been writing a daily newspaper column called My Day, and once the U.S. entered the war, she used it to share information about how efforts were being made to prepare for war on the home front and to rally citizens into doing their part by volunteering for organizations like the Red Cross. In 1942, she went to England where bombings and air raid sirens were near daily and to observe the women's roles in the war effort and to visit American servicemen there. While there, her day started at 8 a.m. and didn't end until midnight. She visited hundreds of wounded victims while there, offered to write their families when she got back home, and then kept this promise, writing to the hundreds of names she collected while she was there. She was also impressed by the work the women were doing there to support England's part of the war effort and how the social class of these women did not seem to matter. She wrote, These British Isles, which we always regarded as class conscious, as a place where people were so nearly frozen in their classes that they rarely moved from one to another, became welded together by war into a closely knit community in which many of the old distinctions lost their point and from which new values emerged. She undoubtedly hoped for social and racial distinctions in the U.S. could see this kind of positive change, too. Back home, Miss Roosevelt also lobbied for the Women's Land Army after seeing the similar program while in place in England. The U.S. Women's Land Army ended up putting an estimated 2.5 million women to work on the farms. Again in 1943, she traveled to a war zone, this time to the Pacific. The president wanted her to go to Australia and New Zealand, somewhat safe areas, but she insisted on traveling to Guadalcanal and other nearby islands, which were much more active in fighting at the time. When she first arrived, Admiral William Halsey admitted he dreaded her visit because of the security issues involved. Again, she visited hospitals, factories, and other places, and was interested in what the women were doing. She was impressed by this time by Women's Ambulance Corps, who did their own vehicle maintenance and lifted stretchers in and out of them on their own. By the end of her trip, Admiral Halsey admitted she had accomplished more good than any other person or any other group of civilian that had passed through my area. When she was home, the First Lady also chose to lead by example for the housewives of the country. Beginning in January 1942, consumer goods rationing began, and the White House was no exception. Of course, along with her White House chef friend, Henrietta Nesbitt, she was already partly used to doing this. During the earlier years of FDR's presidency, she and Nesbitt came up with and served nutritionally balanced but bland and cheap meals, even during White House functions. So when rationing began, Nesbitt came up with wartime menus for dishes like eggs stuffed with meat scraps, noodles and mushrooms with chicken scraps, and casseroles. These meals were intended to inspire the nation through hard times. 
People were also encouraged by the government to grow family or community produce gardens, so-called victory gardens, to offset the food rationing. As canned food became scarce due to the steel being needed elsewhere. This allowed people to eat fresh produce during the growing season, and they were encouraged to can their own goods at home for the winter. Home canning used glass jars rather than the steel ones bought at the store. Even the White House had its own victory garden. But not everything could be grown in a backyard garden, and the shopping and meal planning still fell to the women. They had to learn to adjust to new types of meals and recipes using what was available and to stretch what they did have. Red meat was a large part of the American diet before, and as it became less available, women chose lesser cuts or grades of meat until these two were unavailable and alternative sources of protein, like fish and poultry, were used instead. The Office of Price Administration, which was in charge of rationing and consumer goods pricing, also strongly advocated for meatless days. Eggs, milk, and cheese began to be used more and more as the war progressed. The magazine Good Housekeeping became a valuable source for women, which constantly kept up with the changes needed in a wartime rationed kitchen, writing how to stretch foods, substitute, or how to do without. Sugar, one of the first items rationed, was replaced with maple syrup, molasses, and corn syrup in recipes. It was advised to whip butter with margarine or even a bit of unflavored gelatin and a bit of milk to stretch its use. In October 1943, women were encouraged to use increased amounts of cereal like oatmeal and soy flour to stretch meals even further while still being filling. It also encouraged women to use specific items at times to reduce waste or spoilage, such as in the fall 1943 issue, when an author pushed women to use sweet potatoes rather than white potatoes, as the crop was particularly good that year. Other non-food goods like steel, aluminum, and rubber products, gasoline, silk, and nylon were rationed too, and although makeup supplies dwindled, women were still encouraged to keep their feminine appearances. The government and cosmetic companies released propaganda to convince women it was their patriotic duty and necessary to keep morale up. Painted nails, a powdered face, and especially a red lipstick were the way to go. This was in part because Hitler hated so-called made-up women, and so wearing makeup was viewed as a symbol of a free society, a way to stick it to the Nazis. In 1940, Elizabeth Arden, the woman responsible for popularizing makeup and a leader in the cosmetics industry, was approached and asked to create a red lipstick to match the military uniforms women wore. Women serving were then issued a makeup kit that included the Montezuma red lipstick Miss Arden had created. Many other companies came up with similar, usually, usually patriotically named red lipsticks for civilian women. Even the women working in the factories continued to don makeup each day, and some factories even supplied makeup for women in their changing rooms. Women were careful with their makeup to make it last, but when they ran out of it, they would use alternatives like lip stains made from beetroot and would use boot polish for mascara. Side note, don't do that. But this hanging onto makeup routines in the middle of a war helped keep a sense of pre-war normalcy in a society that in other ways had been completely upended. Hairstyles and clothing changed too to accommodate what the women were doing and for rationing. Women that worked on farms or in factories would keep their hair under a scarf or turban to keep it from dirt and grime and to keep it out of danger of getting stuck in machinery. And of course, many styled their hair into victory rolls, named so after the horizontal spins planes would do as a sign of celebration or a victory. The point of most of these hairstyles, like this one, was to keep hair up and away from the face, where it was out of the way. 
Hollywood star Veronica Lake, who before was known for her long hair sweeping down across when I helped popularize these roles, after the government approached her and asked her to cut her hair and style it in this way. Katherine Hepburn also appeared in several movies wearing wide-legged trousers, which helped popularize pants for women also. Before, women almost always wore skirts, and many women had never even worn pants at all before they began working. Soon, though, they became acceptable for casual wear and for working in the home garden. With rationing, skirt hemlines got shorter and decorative elements disappeared from clothes, and a new simplistic style appeared. Rayon became the most popular fabric option as wool and nylon were needed by the military and Japanese silk was banned. Since they couldn't get stockings, usually made of silk or nylon then, they would use makeup to darken their legs and draw a line up the back of their calves to simulate the look of stockings. Of course, women serving in the military wore the uniforms of the respective branch, but many of their dress uniforms generally consisted of a knee-length skirt, buttoned-up shirt and tie, a button jacket, a cap, and leather shoes. Field uniforms varied from branch to branch, and some changed throughout the war also. So women obviously did quite a lot to support the war effort, and they proved they were very capable of doing so-called men's work. Yet, when the war was over, they were pressured to return to the home and being a housewife again. The men returning needed jobs, and the women were supposed to give them up for them. Many women who didn't quit their jobs were fired. Women who did continue to work were referred to as unlovely women who were lost, suffered from penis envy, or were just plain man-hating. Thus began the rise of the 50s housewife and rigid gender roles that took hold, where women cooked and cleaned and took care of the children, all in heels and full makeup, while the men went to work and mowed and barbecued on the weekends. No matter what they did during the war, or where they ended up after, these women were amazing in their own right, and as I said in the beginning, deserve recognition just as much as the men. That's it for today. Thank you for attending this Her Story session. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Her Story Session, and make sure to click follow for more episodes.